Church family, real simple this morning, uh, who is Jesus? And more accurately, not just, or not more accurately, who is Jesus is the question, but more specifically to you and me, uh, wh what is it that you think of Jesus? When you think of Jesus, who do you see? What do you see? What is he like? What comes to mind? What comes to mind when you think of Jesus on your best, most pleasurable, and most successful days? And what comes to mind when you think of Jesus on your most trying, painful, and hard days? What comes to mind? Are they the same? Are they different? And more accurately for all of us today, what kind of Jesus does the attitude and actions of my life actually say I think of? Because understand, the reality is this, church family, what you and I think about when we think about Jesus, who we understand Him to be, what we think He is like will directly dictate the manner of life that we live. It'll dictate our courage or our anxiety. It will determine our strength and security. It will drive our love and compassion. It will direct our plans and our purpose. And this is nothing new and this is not rocket science. It, it, it just is this way. Who you and I understand Jesus, God to be, will determine the manner in which we live our lives. It was true 2,000 years ago when a young teenage boy on the shores of Galilee by the name of John was approached by Jesus, and Jesus looking at John and his brother James there running the family business, fishermen's on the Sea of Galilee, Jesus looked at this young, this young man and said, follow me. And it says he dropped the nets and he followed Jesus. And here we come to the passage today some seven decades later, and that young 15-year-old boy now finds himself somewhere in his mid-80s to early 90s, still following Jesus because of who he understands Jesus to be. So if you will, turn with me, church family, to the book of Revelation, chapter 1. Shared last week, if you're having trouble finding it, I'll make it real easy. Just turn to the last book. It's there, Revelation chapter 1, and we're going to pick up in verse 9. Revelation 1, verse 9, listen with me, church family. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Now let's pause here for a moment. This is, this is really the introduction, John's introduction and, and setting for the entire book. He says, I, John, John, the one whom, when he wrote his gospel, was so in awe that Jesus Christ would actually love him, that he never referred to himself by name just as the disciple whom Jesus loved. 
John, the one who at the Last Supper reclined his head into Christ's chest as they all lounged there at the Last Supper. John, one who has seen Jesus transfigured on the mount, one who has watched Jesus lifted up like the snake in the wilderness on the cross, one who has seen the empty tomb, who has seen the risen Lord ascend into heaven, I, John. And notice what he says. He doesn't say, I, John, apostle, I, John, special servant of the Lord. He says, I, John, your brother and fellow participant. Driving in that, the church is a family. He says, I, John, I'm writing. We know who he's writing to. He's writing to these seven churches that are in modern-day Turkey here called Asia Minor. He's writing to these believers, and he says, I, John, your brother, we're family in Christ because of what Jesus has done and saving us and adopting us as sons and daughters of the Most High, and fellow participant. Fellow participant, an interesting little word that means a, a common sharing, a common fellowship with, in what? In the tribulation, that is affliction, trouble, distress, hardship, in the kingdom, in the the kingdom and in, in, in perseverance, in an enduring perseverance that bears up under that which comes against it and oppresses it. He said, I, I'm a fellow partaker. You're suffering, I'm suffering too. You share in the kingdom, I'm sharing in the kingdom too. You're called to an, a persevering endurance, so am I called to a persevering endurance in Jesus. This is, this is the life, the pattern that Jesus left for us. This is the way that Jesus lived. This is the cost of discipleship and the call of Christ. This is the reality of the Christian life, and I, John, your brother in Christ, am a fellow participant in it with you. He says, this is the lot. He says, says, I was on the island called Patmos. Now, Patmos is a small, rocky island, a six-by-ten-mile island, about 61 miles southwest of Ephesus. It's in the Aegean Sea, and it was a small, rocky island that was a penal colony for the Roman Empire. Though it, had, though it was populated, it was primarily used at this time in the late first century as a place to send criminals of the state into exile where they would engage in backbreaking labor, mining the rock. Exhausting labor watched by watchful Roman soldiers ready at any moment to pull out the whip and make the labor even more excruciating. Food and clothing and scarce supply your accommodations for sleep, nothing more than some of the very rocks you mind. Here is where John, in his older age, finds himself exiled on the island of Patmos. Why? Because of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. A parallelism saying, I, I have stood for what God has said. I have stood for the Word, what God revealed, what God wrote down in the Bible. I have stood for it. I have proclaimed the witness of Jesus that He is fully God and fully man, that He alone is Lord, that He alone saves. It is on the basis of the fact that I have stood for who God is and what He says, I find myself here exiled on the island of Patmos. And at the same time, while He is in exile cut off from the community of believers. There he was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, a phrase referring to he was deeply seeking the Lord on the Lord's Day, likely Sunday. Here he is. I may be in exile, but he will still worship the Lord is what he says. And I was there, and I, I, I heard behind me a loud voice speaking, saying, write these things down. So though they can cut John and remove John out from the rest of the church, they cannot 
cut off John from his Lord. He hears a voice telling him, write these things down, write these things down to these churches and send them to you. Now, the reason I pause here and elaborate on this is because right off the bat in this passage, you and I are told something very important in this introduction. You and I are brought face to face with the reality of the Christian life, the reality of the call of Jesus to follow him, the reality of the cost of discipleship. Here is the reality, church family, today. The reality is when you and I come by grace through faith to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, you and I are not brought into a new way of life that we live solo. There are no lone rangers in Jesus' family. It's corporate. We are in it together. We are brothers and sisters adopted and bound by the blood of Jesus. Not only that, but what we experience as we walk the Christian life, Scripture could not be more clear. We are fellow participants. We experience it together. There is a real, tangible fellowship that can only come from following Jesus together. Which means if any of us today are trying to live the Christian life isolated alone as an individual, we've got it wrong. Can I encourage you? Be present with the church. Be plugged into a small group. We call them grow groups. Most of you grow up calling it Sunday school. Be plugged into a small group. Be known and be willing to know. Serve and be willing to allow others to serve when you have need. We find the reality of the Christian life is one as a family together. We also find the reality of the Christian life is one which is sobering and glorious and persevering. It's sobering because he tells us, what, what is our lot as Christians? What is it in Jesus we have a right to in this world? First thing he says, tribulation, affliction, hardship, internal or external. The reality is, church family, if you know Jesus and you stand with Jesus, Jesus is really clear. It doesn't matter where you go in this world. What you experience may be different depending on where you go, but if you are Jesus Christ and you stand where he stands in his word, no matter where you go, you will always be out of alignment with the culture of the world. And because of that, you're going to suffer. You are going to experience hardship. In fact, in the Christian life, it is abnormal to not suffer. Suffering for the sake of Christ is the norm. Experiencing hardship and tribulation for the sake of the glory of God is normal. That's a sobering reality to come to. But it's a glorious reality. We, we don't suffer because we are weak, and we don't suffer because we are marginalized. We don't, we don't suffer because of a place of unimportance. No, we suffer because He has made us a kingdom of priests last week. We suffer because we don't belong to the kingdoms of this world. We belong to the kingdom of God, which has come in part and is coming in full. Because it's come in part, we suffer now, but when it comes in full, we will reign gloriously. It's a reality that's persevering. You and I are called to persevere. We are called to face head-on hardship, trouble. We are called to face head-on the calls of this world that say, just capitulate, just don't stand. That thing that Jesus says there, that thing that God says in his word, we don't really like that in society, so let's just forget that part and take the stuff we do kind of like. You and I are called to live in a world that's going to bring those things all day long like a roaring wind, and you and I are called to bear up firm underneath it and stand our ground. 
on the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. By the way, I love that John puts those things together today because some would say, well, I don't like that the word of God says this thing that's not popular in culture, but I really like that Jesus guy. Listen, guess what Jesus gave witness to? The word of God. Why? Because you know what Jesus' other name is that John so eloquently provides for us in, in, in the gospel? The word of God. There is no difference between what's written in the Bible and Jesus Christ. The reality is just as John was given a commission here in the middle of his circumstances trying to, to write to the, to the churches, church family, you and I are given a commission as well. You and I are called to face tribulation as we stand and witness to the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. We don't need to neglect the Word due to culture's opinions. Instead, we testify to the full counsel of God's Word as we go and make disciples of all nations, properly proclaiming the gospel message empowered by the Holy Spirit to serve the world as ambassadors of heaven who are charged with the ministry of reconciliation. Church family, this is the reality of the Christian life. We do it together as a family. We walk in tribulation. We stand as a kingdom of priests to, to the Most High God. We endure and persevere together as we go out and make disciples. This is the reality of the Christian life. And when you and I embrace, as we're called to, as we embrace the reality of the Christian life, it's going to put us in hard spots, just like John. So how will we embrace the Christian life and endure to the end? Well, look with me. John, remember, here he is, old man. All of the other disciples have been martyred. He's not been martyred, but he's certainly been in prison before. He's been, uh, tradition says, boiled and boiled alive in, in, in burning oil. Here he is, exiled. He hears a voice. It says, then I turned to see the voice that was still speaking with me. And having turned around, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe reaching to his feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire, and his feet were like burnished bronze when it had been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters." In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its full strength. Oh, can you imagine, church family? Here John sitting on some cliff overlooking the waves, trying to find a spot alone here in exile. He hears a voice, and when he turns around to hear this loud, this great voice that was like a trumpet. When he turns around, says he sees seven lampstands. Now we'll come back to that. And in the midst of those lampstands, one like a son of man. Now if you've been with us through our series in Daniel, this, this is not a surprise statement. It makes us think back to Daniel chapter 7 when Daniel in exile in a foreign land has a vision and he sees the rest of human history play out before him. And he sees at the end of human history a, a wicked, Satan-empowered ruler boasting against God rise and, and seemingly conquer the whole world. 
Who can defeat such a one? And if one can be defeated, who could possibly enter into the world and end the chaos and bring an everlasting kingdom? And it said he saw one like a son of man riding on the clouds, the only one found who could stand before the ancient of days. And all of a sudden, what do you see? The same son of man that Daniel saw in Daniel 7 is the same son of man John now turns and doesn't see in a vision, but sees tangibly real right before him. One like a son of man, the one who has rights to rule the world, the one who ushers in an eternal kingdom, clothed in a robe, reaching to his feet and girded with a golden sash. That language, church family, speaks of one who is a priest, who has a priestly function. The lampstands hinted that. The lamps in the tabernacle would burn. They were symbolizing the light of God that shines in the darkness. One of the functions of the priest was to tend to those oil lamps. It was to keep the wicks trimmed. It was to keep the oil fresh so the light burned before the Lord continually. The language here, the the garb of a robe girded with a sash, it is priestly language. This son of man is one who is a great high priest who will stand between sinful man and holy God. Girded in a golden sash hints that this priest is not just simply a priest, but he is a king. who reigns. It says he's not just clothed this way, but his head and his hair were white like wool, like snow. There is a purity to a pure white hair. It speaks of Jesus' purity, his faultlessness, his holiness, his righteousness. The fact that it is long and wide, it speaks to It's a symbolism for age, wisdom, that he is all wise. Not only that, but by age, what we mean is it symbolizes the fact that Jesus is eternal. He has no beginning. He has no end. He is our beginning and our end, but he has no beginning and end. Jesus has always been. He is not a created being. He is not a man who achieved Godhood. He's not a man that God was pleased and gave some divinity to. No, Jesus is the eternal God. By the way, that language there that his hair is white, this description, it wasn't an interesting. When we go back to Daniel 7, there's one described as having long, white, pure hair, the ancient of days. The clear indication is Jesus, the Son of Man, is equal and is the ancient of days. Jesus is God. He's always been God. He always will be God. He has all knowledge. He is all right. It says his eyes were like a flame of fire. The imagery there speaks to the fact that Jesus knows and sees everything. He has all knowledge. Nothing escapes his gaze, and, and, and to have a fiery gaze implies judgment, meaning that nothing, no, no wicked deed done in the shadows of secrecy will escape his knowledge and his justice. Oh, how incredible. Here, John, wrongfully exiled for crimes that he's not guilty of, having done nothing wrong, no deed escapes the knowledge inside of Jesus, and no sin or wickedness will escape his justice. His feet were like burnished 
bronze. It's an interesting word used used only here. It it describes a golden color metal that has been smelted together, refined, heated in a furnace to produce a new metal which has a stronger strength. That imagery here speaks of the fact that his feet like burnished bronze means Jesus is mighty. He is strong. His feet are firmly planted. He is immovable. It does not matter who comes and who tries to assault him. Jesus never moves. Instead, we either move in submission to Him or are moved in judgment by Him. He is strong. He has all power. He is almighty. It says that in His his voice was like the sound of many waters. Think if you've ever stood next to some kind of a a waterfall where the the intensity and the the noise, the decibel level of the waters, it, it overcompasses and overpowers any other thing you can hear as those mighty, powerful waters rage. In Scripture, Ezekiel says God speaks with a voice that rages like the sound of many waters. This means Jesus speaks is not just a mighty voice, but His voice is divine. Not only is it divine, it's powerful. Isaiah 55 tells us that the Word of God goes out and it never comes back empty. The Word of God never fails. It always accomplishes what it puts, sets out to do. Amen. His Word is powerful. It is overwhelming. The book of Job, chapter 37 makes this statement speaking of the voice of God. Listen closely to the thunder of His voice and the rumble that goes out from heaven. Under the whole heaven He lets it loose and His lightning to the ends of the earth. After it a voice roars, He thunders with His majestic voice and He does not restrain the lightnings when His voice is heard. God thunders with His voice wondrously. Here's the reality, God speaks. When Jesus speaks, He speaks fully divine as God. When Jesus speaks, He speaks in power and when Jesus speaks, it is clear and overwhelming. You and I don't question thunder and lightning, right? You might say, well, is that a rumble of thunder? We'll go outside. You'll, you'll learn pretty quickly. You don't go, wow, I just saw some lightning, heard a massive noise in the sky. I, I, I wonder if the Aggie band is marching through town. It's clear. When God speaks, it's clear. It's not ambiguous. It's clear. He tells us clearly who He is. He tells us clearly who we are. It's clear. It's overwhelming. Nothing else can stand up against it. His voice, like many raging waters, out of In his right hand, he held seven stars. The term, and we'll find out later, the stars are the messengers of the church. They represent God's holy people. And when it says he holds them, that is a present tense verb, meaning this. Jesus holds his people. And present tense means there is never a moment where he is not holding them. Churches may fail. We may fail as the people of God individually or corporately. We, we as Christians in America like to trash talk the local church. You know what Jesus does? He holds it forever. Meaning we can never trash and give up on the local church because that would be us letting go of that which he holds secure forever. 
not just this, but out of his mouth, a two-edged sword instantly reminds us of the Word of God as living and active like what a two-edged sword, able to pierce the division between soul and spirit, bone and marrow. His Word comes out of His mouth. It pierces things in us that we cannot even see or understand, and it doesn't just pierce us, but it brings with it strength, might, victory, and judgment. Amen. And in all of this, when He as he's looking at this figure clothed and strong and mighty and he looks at his face, the glory of the face of Jesus is so great. It's like attempting to look into the sun with the naked eye, something impossible and quite painful. The glory radiates. Here is the picture of Jesus. The picture of Jesus. Now, when you think of Jesus, is this who you think of? When you think of Jesus, is this who you think of? Or when, when, when we think of Jesus, do, do we think of maybe a, a turn or burn Jesus? Just flying off the handle like a bull in a china spot, just can't wait to throw lightning and zap anybody who wrongs him. Or when we think of Jesus, do we think of a Jesus, the grandfather Jesus, who just has all the warm and fuzzies for all of his little human children, and all we have to do is say, God, take us to the toy store and he'll buy us whatever we want? Or do we think of a hippie Jesus? Oh, Jesus, he's just, he just loves and accepts everything. He's good with whatever. That's why Jesus is so great. What do we think of when we think of Jesus? Do we think of a Jesus who's weak? Do we think of a Jesus who's concerned? Do we think of, think of a Jesus who somehow, his, maybe his feet aren't burnished bronze, maybe they're straw. Do we think of a Jesus who, who, who maybe his eyes are flaming fire, but he's got to have some bifocals to help him see clearly. Maybe he's not really aware of everything going on. What do we think of when we think of Jesus? Do we think of this Jesus? And by this Jesus, I don't mean to imply that there's multiple Jesuses. I just simply mean this description, this is Jesus. Amen. Is this who we think of? Because if it is, here's the response. Look with me. We've seen an introduction. We've seen a revelation. Now look at the response. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. This is John, the disciple whom Jesus loves. This is John. This is not the first time he's seen Jesus glorified. He was there at the transfiguration. He was there at the ascension. This is John. And his response to the revelation of who Jesus is right now, his response was to fall down in absolute surrender and complete awe and worship. You see, there's a clear reality about Jesus, church family, and I don't want to, we can tend to with Jesus, pull Jesus to the extremes of our personality. So we can pull Jesus to the turn or burn. Look at how holy he is. How dare you have anything to do with sin? You just quiver and quake like spiders hanging by a thread over the fires of God. Listen, do you know that scripture says it's the kindness of Jesus that draws people to repentance, not the terror? Romans 2. Equally, we can come the other direction. Oh, it's just all warm and fuzzy. Do you see this Jesus? This Jesus is not a weak Jesus. 
He is firm. This Jesus is fully God. This Jesus sees everything. By the way, eyes of flaming fire imply this. Jesus isn't okay with anything and everything. Some things he's pleased by, some things he's displeased by. The word that comes out of his mouth, the English, we translate it because it's what makes sense most in English language. It says came out of his mouth. Literally, it's present tense, meaning his word is always coming out of his mouth. There is never a time Jesus is not speaking what his word says. So to say, well, I like Jesus but don't like his word, can't do that. Jesus in his word, his word is an accurate reflection of who he is. Not only that, well, I don't feel like Jesus is talking. I got news for us, church family. He is always speaking this word. He's talking. We just have poor expectations and aren't listening. John's response before Jesus was to fall down in surrender and worship. And church family, if you and I really understand who Jesus is today, if we really are going to embrace the reality of the Christian life, then, then we have to heed and embrace the reality of who Jesus is. Jesus is not our bro. Now listen, Jesus is personal. And Jesus desires intimacy with you and me that no other relationship can give. The problem is not personal and intimate. The problem is most of us are more proud than we would ever care to admit. We want Jesus in our image, not us in his image. And not only that, not only are we more proud than we care to admit, but we are more casual with Jesus than one would ever dare be before the very presence of the one who is worthy and the one who is God. Amen. Now, I'm not picking on the song. It's a great song, and I have great memories. I stand, I stand in awe of you. And we always tell you to sit down right before we do it. That way, you know, you're guilty if you don't stand up. <laughs> the reality is John doesn't stand up in awe of Jesus. He falls to his face. The proper response to who Jesus is, church family, is a response, is a response of surrender. It is a response of submission. It is a response individually. Will I surrender and submit to him when he evaluates my life and says, Wes, this is sin? Or do I go, oh, no, Jesus, it's not really that sinful. I don't really find my identity in what I do versus you. Uh, my, my language isn't really that bad. I mean, uh, down the street, uh, Bob's, Bob's language is much worse. I, listen, if God looks in my life, if Jesus looks in my life like we're about to see in the next seven weeks as he looks into each one of these churches, if he says something's sin, if he says something is an idol, if he says something has to go, the only proper response to Jesus, yes, Lord, you're right. When I'm in sin, what about when I, I submit my plans for my life? Well, Jesus, here's my wonderful plan. We've entered into retirement now. Here's all the things I expect to do. And Jesus says, hey, that's wonderful. I've got ministry I want you to do with these empty nest years in your retirement. Maybe I won't have you travel as much. You know what the response to that is? And by the way, I'm not harping on anybody's travel plans. We're just using an example. The response is yes, Lord. Oh, oh God, here, here's my plans for my kid. I just want to make sure that they have everything in line, that their resume is perfect by the time they get out at 18, that they get into whatever university is my favorite university so they can get the degree that I think they should have so they can live the life that I've already planned out for them. Listen, 
Jesse's life, the plan and purpose for Jesse's life is not my business. My business is to disciple her so she knows him and follows his plan and purpose for her life. And you know what the response is to Jesus? Yes, Jesus. My plans are not what matters for my child. Your plans are. Well, I worship him even when I'm exiled. Lord, I don't understand this. I don't understand why this week all of a sudden everything is falling apart. People have attacked me, people I've bent over backwards for at work to help and to serve. People have come after me. I got reported to HR because I refused to sign off on a DEI statement that would take me against the words of Scripture. God, where are you? I'm exiled over here in joblessness. God, where are you? God, I don't, Jesus, I don't feel you near. Will I worship him even in exile? Because even in exile, he is still worthy. Will we, as a church, will we submit and surrender? It says Jesus stands in the middle of the lampstands. You know what that means quite literally, church family. We see in a second when we finish out the passage, the lampstands refer to the churches. Quite literally, it means Jesus stands in the middle of the churches. Do you realize, church family, this Jesus, this is who Jesus is. He is in this room today. Amen. Is, are we worshiping Jesus like, he, like he's this? Or are we just checking the box off because it's Sunday and we got to sing a couple songs and put up with pastor's words for a couple minutes? He's here. And by the way, Jesus being in the midst of the lampstands doesn't mean Jesus is only present with his church when we come in the church building to have a worship service. It means he's present with his church always, whether we're in here or we're out there. It means when Jesus comes to us as a church and says, Church, First Baptist Pflugerville, my will for you in this, in this season, I want you to reach these people and to reach these people with the gospel that doesn't change. I'm going to ask that you change a couple things you do. <gasps> I'm going to ask that to better disciple, you get rid of all the pews and you put up circle tables. I'm going to ask that to help save costs and shift some money around. You strip away all the choir and orchestra and you just got a guy a cappella with a guitar. Now listen, I'm intentionally picking on stereotypical things that we hold as precious cows in church life. Not hinting at anything. But if our reaction should Jesus in his glory lead us to make changes like that, if our reaction would be, Jesus, I don't like that. We better repent of our pride. This church does not exist for what you like and from what I like. You want to know the truth? I have never been in a church where I liked everything about it. That includes today. Because my job as pastor is not to make First Baptist Pflugerville in my image to be the church I want. My job is to shepherd you to be the church Jesus wants us to be. Wes's church will not stand up to the gates of hell. Jesus' church will every time. 
We better heed Jesus individually. We better heed Jesus corporately, church family. We will stand before Jesus, this Jesus, this picture of Jesus, and give account. And ultimately, at the heart of Jesus' revelation here, at the heart of this revelation, is not to make us go, ooh. It's because when you move into these letters and as he evaluates the churches, at the, at the end of the day, his heart is that we would be overcomers and share in the fullness of his reward. That's what drives his heart. He wants us to know him. It's in the certainty of knowing who he is that you and I will have the strength to endure and stand. Now here's what's incredible. This Jesus before whom the only right response is surrender. Watch what happens here. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me the hand of power, the hand of favor. He placed his right hand on me, saying, stop being afraid. Daniel saw the same description. He saw the Son of Man in Daniel 7, and in Daniel 10 he saw the man hovering over the river, the same description. But when Daniel fell down dead, it was an angel who touched him. When John falls down, it's no angel. It's Jesus. Amen. Why? Because church family, here's the incredible reality. That's the difference the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus makes. Because John, who has been saved by grace through faith, he has no need. Is John perfect here? No, he's still a human. He's still prone to fall into sin. But John has no need to fear before the glory of God because he is in Christ. And Jesus, in his grace and mercy, lays his hand and picks John up. How incredible that the one who is worthy of us falling on our faces is the one who calls us friend. And when you and I understand that he is worthy and he is good, and when those two things come together in a right place, what it produces in our life is not some misunderstanding of his glory to where we're just terrified to mess up, where we're just terrified by what seems to be an angry God. No, our God is not angry, he's good. But at the same time, we don't abuse his goodness and run around and act like he's just okay with me doing whatever I want. I got the grace of God. Instead, we know the peace and the security and the kindness and the intimacy of the one whom if he pulled back the curtain right now, we would all fall on our faces. And for those of us in Christ, we would know the kindness of his touch. My child, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid because I am the first and the last. Don't be afraid because I'm the one who died. I died in your pace and place and paid the price you couldn't pay. I'm the one who died, but I am, behold, alive forevermore. The living one, the tense of that verb, always alive, never will die. I am the living one and I hold the keys of death and Hades. I possess all ownership and authority over life and death and the afterlife. So John, don't you be afraid. I'm worthy of your life, John. I'm worthy of your life, First Baptist Luger. That's what Jesus says. He is worthy of our lives, and he is also the one 
who stands in our behalf, the great high priest, to whom we find grace and mercy in times of need. He's also the one who sees everything. He sees when we're wrong, but he also sees when we've been wrong. And he promises to correct us, to instruct us out of his love, to make us more like Christ. He promises to deal with those who've wronged us and, and deal with them in their own way. His, his feet are strong and immovable. He is powerful. He knows all things. This is the glory of Jesus, the one who in Christ touches us and says, do not be afraid. The one who died in our place, who is alive forevermore, the Alpha and the Omega, not a beginning or a possible end, the beginning and the end, Jesus Christ. So the question today, church family, how do we think about Jesus? And is how I think about Jesus in line with who he reveals himself to be? And am I willing to respond to who he actually is? Or in my pride, am I saying he has to respond to me? That's the question in front of us today. Let's pray. Jesus, we look to you. You are worthy. You know where our hearts are at. And Father, my prayer is as your word now sits in into our hearts. Is that we would really see you clearly, Lord. I am a lousy messenger because no words of man could ever accurately describe the glory and the greatness and the goodness of who you are. But by your grace, we are here today, and it is to your grace that we are to respond. So Jesus, knowing where we're at, find us faithful to worship and respond to you today. It's in your name I pray.